Hello there and welcome to the Paradox Podcast. My name is Craig Hadley and I am one of the pastors at Paradox Church, which is in Redlands, California. All the way back in 2013, before we were a church, we started a 66-part series through every book of the Bible. Today marks the beginning of the 58th part of that 66-part series, which is the Book of Lamentations. Now, one thing that's different about Paradox than other churches is that sermons here are designed to start discussions and not end them. So if you disagree with how I interpret and hold Lamentations, then I want you to know that you are welcome here because we think the discussion is important. Today's sermon is entitled, Experiencing Lamentations. The book of Lamentations is found in Christian Bibles right after the book of Jeremiah. The reason for this is because traditionally, both Jews and Christians have attributed the Book of Lamentations, which is five separate poems, to be the work of the prophet Jeremiah. However, most scholars today do not believe that Jeremiah wrote the Book of Lamentations for a number of reasons. So as long as we acknowledge that, I believe that it's okay for us to refer to the author of Lamentations as Jeremiah knowing that that is the poetic author of these words, but very unlikely to be the historical author of these poems. So let's begin with Lamentations 1-1, the first of the five poems in the book of Lamentations. The author writes, Alas, the city once full of people now sits alone. The prominent lady among the nations has become a widow. The princess who once ruled the provinces has become a forced laborer. She weeps bitterly at night. Tears stream down her cheeks. She has no one to comfort her. All her friends have betrayed her. They have become her enemies. So the opening line of this poem refers to a city that is now vacant. The author then takes the city that is vacant and gives it human emotion. The poet imagines the city as a woman who at one time was a princess, but is now a slave. This anthropomorphic woman is weeping bitterly and no one is there to comfort her. And while we are only two verses in, immediately we are filled with discomfort. Here is a woman weeping alone, and the poet says there is no one to comfort her. Now, this may be a bit abstract for you, which is why I believe the poet then in verse 3 begins to reference concrete historical events. The author writes, Judah has departed into exile under affliction and harsh oppression. Now, this line references the most influential event in Jewish history during biblical times, the Babylonian exile. You see, the nation of Israel, which would later become Judah, was established sometime around the year 1000 BCE. Four centuries later, which is longer than America has been around, may I remind you, a superpower rose to the east known as Babylon and in 586 BCE launched a full-on assault on the city of Jerusalem, 
the Babylonian army overwhelmed the army from Judah, and Jerusalem fell. After conquering Jerusalem, the Babylonians took the survivors back with them to Babylon and forced them to live as Babylonians. They forced them to eat Babylonian food. They encouraged them to take Babylonian wives in order to erase the history and traditions of the Jewish people. And their grand plan was to eventually erase all memories of Jerusalem so that the descendants of the people of Jerusalem would become good Babylonian citizens. Now, an event like this has never happened in my lifetime. But imagine for a moment how traumatic it might be for a military superpower to invade our country. And if we were lucky enough to survive, force us to go back and live in their country as their citizens. This event, the Babylonian exile, is a traumatic event. And this trauma shapes the entire Hebrew Bible, or what Christians refer to as the Old Testament. Now, after referencing this historical event, the poet continues in verse 4, The roads to Zion mourn because no one travels to the festivals. All her city gates are deserted. Her priests groan. Her virgins grieve. She is in bitter anguish. Ugh. Here the author says, religion and sex have stopped. What else could there possibly be? Verse 5, we read, her foes subjugated her. Her enemies are at ease. And in the last half of verse 5, we assume the author will talk about how terrible the Babylonians are for afflicting this pain and suffering on the people of Jerusalem. But surprisingly, here, just five verses into the first poem, the author takes an unexpected turn. Because the poet writes, For the Lord afflicted Jerusalem because of her many acts of rebellion. Now this is rather surprising. Because it's Babylon that attacked the people of Jerusalem. But here the poet is saying, oh no, 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 God attacked us. God is the one who sent the Babylonians to cause this suffering. Now, how on earth do you get to the idea, the theology, the paradigm, that when another nation, another superpower named Babylon attacks you, you come to the conclusion that God has sent this superpower to attack you? Because what the author is arguing for here is that God sent the Babylonians to the city of Jerusalem to destroy it. How do you get there? I mean, how do you get there, right? <laughs> well, the way that you get there is that you go back just a few books to the left of Lamentations to the fifth book of the Bible, which is the book of Deuteronomy. Now, in order to understand the book of Lamentations, you need to understand the book of Deuteronomy. And our first series of this calendar year was in the book of Deuteronomy. Now, if you remember, the book of Deuteronomy contains a four-hour-long sermon given by Moses right before Israel is about to enter the Promised Land. Now, during that sermon, Moses refers to what theologians call the Mosaic Covenant. Now, that may sound intimidating to you, 
but mosaic means it belongs to Moses, and covenant means promise. Because here in Deuteronomy, Moses tells the people of Israel that God made a promise to Israel. This can be found in Deuteronomy chapter 30 in verse 16. The promise is that the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you are entering to possess. And while that's a good promise, it's important to read the fine print, which takes place in the first few sentences before that promise is stated. Two sentences earlier, we read, If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I am commanding you today, by loving the Lord your God, walking in his ways, and observing his commandments, decrees, and ordinances, then you shall live and become numerous, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you are entering to possess. Notice how this is a statement of if and then. Because when God made a promise to Israel that would later become known as the Mosaic Covenant, it's important for us to acknowledge that God made a conditional promise to Israel. This is not a promise that will stand the test of time if Israel doesn't hold up its end of the bargain. And Moses wants them to know that if they fail to hold up their end, then there will be severe consequences. The very next verse after the Mosaic Covenant says, But if your heart turns away and you do not hear, but are led astray to bow down to other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall perish. You shall not live long in the land that you are crossing the Jordan to enter and to possess. So the Mosaic Covenant is a conditional promise. And the conditional promise is quite simply this. God will allow the Israelites to inhabit the promised land if they are loyal, if they are devout, and if they are faithful exclusively to God. Otherwise, they will be removed by God from the promised land. It's almost like a better name for the promised land is the conditionally promised land, right? So let's make it even simpler to understand. The Mosaic Covenant basically says to Israel, if you are good to God, then God will be good to you. But if you aren't good to God, then it's game over, my friends. Game over. So we ask the question, how on earth can the prophet, the poet of Lamentations, get to the conclusion that God sent the Babylonians to attack and destroy the people of Judah? And the answer is, the author believes in the Mosaic Covenant. And if Judah was good to God, then God would have been good to Judah. But, the prophet says, Judah was not good to God. We pick up the poem in verse 8 when the poet writes, Jerusalem committed terrible sin, therefore she became an object of scorn. All who admired her have despised her because they have seen her nakedness. She groans aloud and turns away in shame. Oh, the poet says, Jerusalem brought this suffering upon themselves, and there is no one to comfort her in her abundant tears because she only has herself to blame. After the first 10 verses, we get the sense that this book, the book of Lamentations, is about telling the people of Judah 
See? I told you so. I told you that if you were good to God, then God would be good to you. Well, my friends, you weren't quite religious enough for God to keep you in the promised land. We can hear this sermon writing itself. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to remind ourselves to be good to God so that God will be good to us. And to warn ourselves that if we are not good to God, then God will kick us out of our homes. That sermon will fill up some pews, right? So just when we think we've got this book all figured out, something rather strange happens at the tail end of verse 11. The prophet, who has been the main narrator of this entire poem, is suddenly interrupted by the city of Jerusalem. The city of Jerusalem that the author has said has been weeping with no one to comfort her. The city of Jerusalem steps forward and says in the poem, Look, O Lord, consider that I have become worthless. Is it nothing to you, all you who pass by on the road? Look and see, is there any pain like mine? The Lord has afflicted me. God has inflicted it on me when God burned with anger. God sent down fire into my bones and it overcame them. God spread out a trapper's net for my feet and God made me turn back. God has made me desolate. I am faint all day long. She continues, my sins are bound around my neck like a yoke. They are fastened together by God's hand. God has placed God's yoke on my neck. God has sapped my strength. God has handed me over to those whom I cannot resist. I weep because of these things. My eyes flow with tears for there is no one in sight who can comfort me or encourage me. Yes, I was terribly rebellious. Out in the street, the sword bereaves a mother of her children. Inside the house, death is present. A few verses later, the city continues, Let all of my enemies' wickedness come before you. Afflict them, God, just as you have afflicted me because of all of my acts of rebellion. For my groans are many, and my heart is sick with sorrow. And on that word, the first poem comes to an end. Whoa. <laughs> That's intense, isn't it? In this poem, you have two characters talking to each other. One is the prophet, who we'll call Jeremiah, and the other character is the city of Jerusalem. The prophet basically tells the city of Jerusalem, you deserve all of the suffering of this exile. And the city responds by saying, fine, but do you understand how cruel this suffering is? And after leaving that question in the air, the city then says to the prophet, why aren't my neighbors suffering as much as I am? Because here we have this Mosaic covenant where God says, as long as you keep my commandments, you will be my people. If you are good to God, then God will be good to you. And the city of Jerusalem in this poem says, this covenant is not a blessing. This covenant is a curse. Because look at the people that God didn't make this covenant with. They seem to be doing just fine. 
And when you consider that the city of Jerusalem feels like no one is there to comfort her, you realize that there is this loneliness at the heart of this poem. And this loneliness is not solved by God showing up and offering comfort. Scholar Dr. Adele Berlin writes in her commentary about Lamentations these words, the entire book of Lamentations may be thought of as an appeal for God's mercy, yet God remains silent. According to Dr. Berlin, this is the thesis of Lamentations. The thesis. There was a cry for mercy to God and God did not answer. How on earth did this book end up in the Bible? I mean, I feel like it's the responsibility of the Bible to tell us that God is good, right? And yet here's this odd little book filled with five poems and all five of them tell us about how they begged for mercy in response to the exile and God didn't do anything. And that book is somehow in the Bible. What do we do with this strange book? This book of lamentations that tells us about people begging for mercy and God doing nothing in their suffering. What do we do with the book of lamentations? I mean, it's a testament about how God failed to act. Should we study it? Should we apply it? Does this book have any value for us today? I would answer that question with the word, yes. In fact, I would say, I believe that the book of Lamentations is one of the most important and necessary books in all of the Bible. I want to give you three reasons as to why I believe that this book should be widely studied, read, and accepted by Christians today for what it truly is, because this has the power to transform the direction of Christianity and ultimately, I would argue, save the church. The first reason I believe that we need to study the book of Lamentations takes place after the exile. When Babylon conquered Judah in 586 BCE and forced the people of Judah to live in Babylon, this went on for what felt like forever. For 47 years, nearly five decades, the people of Judah lived in Babylon without any hope that they would ever return to Jerusalem. And then something remarkable happened. A bigger superpower than Babylon rose to the east of Babylon, led by a man named Cyrus. This superpower was Persia, and in 539 BCE, Persia launched an attack on Babylon and destroyed Babylon. They then looked around at the people of Judah and said, who are you? And they said, we're the people of Judah. They said, why don't you go back home and we'll give you money to rebuild your city? as long as you remain faithful to Persia. And by faithful, I mean that Persia wanted them to pay taxes to Persia. While the taxes were high and the taxes were troublesome, 
The people of Judah felt that returning to Jerusalem was better, so they went back across the desert and arrived at home and began to rebuild their temple and their city. After several years, they rebuilt the temple, they rededicated it to God, and they lived in what was once known as the Promised Land. They did this for another 350 years until they were an independent nation once again in a time known as the Hasmonean Dynasty. This happened in the second century BCE, and it was during this time that we think, we don't know for sure, that people started to gather together what would eventually become the writings that composed the Hebrew Bible. Now, at some point during those meetings, when they were deciding which books would be in the Bible and which books would not be in the Bible, there was someone at that meeting that said, hey, we should include the book of Lamentations. Now, I assume this comment was met with sheer and utter shock. Really, they would say the book about how God wasn't merciful to us? Yeah, yeah, the first person would say, yeah, that one. I think that's important to put in there. But why would we include that? The other people would say, that was a long time ago. Remember, we've been liberated from that. We should include a book about how God stayed faithful to us and how God sent Cyrus to liberate us from the Babylonians. Now, the first person might say, well, we should include that. We should include that as part of our story. But let's include the writings from our ancestors who lived during the exile, who did not believe that they would ever taste freedom again, because their voice is valuable too. And that moment, the moment of Babylonian exile, we learned something, didn't we? And as you are listening on this podcast, I want to ask you what you have learned when things have gone awry. When you had plans and all of the plans fell apart, when you experienced suffering that was simply too terrible to name. Did your picture of God stay the same or did it change? My guess is when you experienced a trauma, your picture and understanding of God shifted dramatically. At some point, all of us who identify as religious will admit that we believed the Mosaic Covenant, didn't we? At some point in our journey, we all thought to ourselves, you know, if I'm good to God, then God will take care of me. So all I need to do is go to church, read my Bible, Stick with a godly lifestyle and not a worldly lifestyle, and God will take care of me and I can avoid suffering. And then suffering happened, didn't it? And we all realized that the faith of the Mosaic Covenant simply doesn't work. This is a contradiction in Scripture because Moses is convinced that as long as the people of Israel remain faithful to God, then God will remain faithful to them. And then the exile happens and it reveals that the Mosaic covenant doesn't always work. We have this idea that if we are more religious, that God will love us. 
or if we are suffering, it's because we were not religious enough. While the Mosaic Covenant would affirm that theology, the book of Lamentations tears it apart. My friends, the first reason why the book of Lamentations is so important for Christians in America today is because Lamentations exposes the fallacy that we can somehow endear ourselves to God by being people of faith. God does not offer extra blessings, extra protection, extra prosperity to anyone because of what religion they do or do not practice or how devout they are. God loves everyone to the fullest of God's own capacity. Which brings us to the second reason that I believe that Lamentations is so important for us to study. To talk about the second reason, I want to tell you a story. One of the great honors of my life was leading worship music for a junior-senior Bible conference up in the mountains not too far from here. Now, we would pack about 400 to 500 high school students into a basement, and we would offer them a sonic assault of emotion. I loved being a part of this praise band and organizing the songs. And the last year that I got to lead this worship team, I decided to add a song called Does Your Heart Break by The Brilliance. Now, this song is a bit of a different tone than the other songs we'd played up until that point. It talks about hungry children and racial injustice, and it wonders where God is in the midst of this suffering. In fact, the song repeatedly asks God for mercy but God remains silent in the song. So we debuted this song at Bible camp with the lights, with the jumping, you know, all of it, right? And we got heavily criticized for it. We were told that we shouldn't question God's existence in a song during a worship service, during a Bible camp. There were people who said, this song doesn't belong here. There were adults who constantly wanted to ask me why we were doing that song. And I would tell them, well, I was trying my best to give people a full biblical experience. And I thought, how can we include the book of Lamentations? So we picked this song. And while people could understand that rationale, there still just was this sense of discomfort as people looked at me and said, mm, this doesn't belong here. Now, you may look at me or you may listen to me and think to yourself, wow, Craig is so enlightened. I mean, how did he know to incorporate songs to honor the book of Lamentations? I will tell you that I am a growing person just like you. And I distinctly remember in 2010 when I attended a church service where somebody played a lament for one of the songs. After the church service was over, I looked at my friends that were sitting next to me and I told them how mad I was that someone would dare to question God's existence in a worship song. I think my exact words were, every song that is played in church should be happy and honor God. I believe that I said this because I consider myself a churchy person and church should be the place where you're refreshed, you're energized, you're told about how God is good all the time and all the time God is good. But I had never read the book of Lamentations. 
And the fact that I had never read the book of Lamentations developed this blind spot in my theology. And the blind spot was that if we question God's existence openly and in church settings, it would create a bunch of atheists. And so I didn't want people to question God's existence in church because, you know, I wanted people to stay faithful to the faith. And here I was scared to have people question God's existence openly in a church service. And while I was scared, the Bible clearly wasn't. The compilers of the Bible 2,000 years ago were like, yeah, include that one where God heard the cries of mercy and did nothing. That'll be good for people's spiritual growth. I tell you this because the second reason that I believe it's important for us to study the book of Lamentations is because when in 2010, I thought to myself, why are these people singing a lament? I thought they were trying to be progressive and edgy and bring a new idea into the church. I did not understand that they were actually trying to be more traditional and honor the heritage of where our faith came from before, which is why it's so important for us to study Lamentations. Lamentation is the tradition. This is logical. And the reason it's logical is because the English word radical is from the Latin word radix. Radix means root. And therefore a radical is someone who is deeply rooted in the tradition and not someone who's bringing new societal pressures to the tradition. When you stand up in a worship service and say, I don't believe in God because of the suffering around me, it is at that moment, it is at that moment that you are standing in the very heart of the tradition of our faith. Every week at Paradox, we sing a song of celebration and lamentation. We do this because there are great things that happen in our lives and there are terrible things that happen in our lives. And after doing these lamentations for over a year now, I have learned that what this does more than anything else is it breaks our addiction and our temptation to return to the theology of the Mosaic Covenant. We are always tempted to believe that God might love us more if we were just a bit more religious. But when we lament together, when we openly express that we have doubts and we have times when God has not responded to our cries for mercy, when we accept that as part of our human experience, it breaks us from the addiction of false positivity and dares us to remember the bold move made by people compiling scripture so long ago when they said, yeah, include that one where God doesn't show up. Because that's what we experience too. Which brings us to the third reason why I believe it's important for us to study the book of Lamentations. We know the end of this story, don't we? Now, the author does not know the end of the story. There's a chance that this author died while living in exile. But we, living 2,500 years later, know the ending to this story. 
the exile only lasted for 47 years. And then Persia showed up and Persia sent them back and helped them rebuild their city. And while it's easy for me to say this on a podcast in a matter of seconds, it's another thing to imagine living in Babylon without any guaranteed sense of liberation for 47 years. And when I read the first poem of the Book of Lamentations, I am struck by this woman that is crying out, asking for somebody to see her and recognize her pain. Here at Paradox, we try our best to offer historical context, to talk about why things are the way they are in the Bible, why we do it this way, what this means for us, all of these things. But at some point, we come across a poem like Lamentations 1, and we say to ourselves, maybe we should stop analyzing this. Maybe instead we should do something else. Maybe we should just sit with this woman, with this city, with these people who lived 2,500 years ago on the other side of the planet. Maybe we should just sit with them and listen to their pain. Because this woman in this poem is desperate for someone to see her and say, this is wrong. This has to stop. The English word compassion is derived from the Latin word compassio. And compassio literally translates to suffer alongside. I think it's important that we study the book of Lamentations. Because it asks us to practice compassion. It asks us to empathize with strangers from a foreign world. Lamentations asks us to sit and feel what these people felt so long ago so that their pain will not be forgotten and that when new opportunities arise that ask us to change who we are, we may remember them and choose love instead. The third reason we need to study the book of Lamentations is because Lamentations is not meant to be analyzed. Lamentations is meant to be experienced. I'm going to wrap up this podcast by playing a recording from last Saturday's service. We invited Adam Whitmer to read Lamentations 1. And I want to invite you to turn off your analytical brain and listen to the words of this poem with your heart. Alas, she sits in solitude. The city that was great with people has become like a widow. The greatest among nations, the princess of provinces, has become a tributary. She weeps bitterly in the night, and her tear is on her cheek. She has no comfort from all her paramours. All her friends have betrayed her. They have become her enemies. Judah has gone into exile because of suffering and great servitude. She dwelled among the nations but found no rest. All her pursuers overtook her in dire straits. The roads of Zion are mourning for lack of festival pilgrims. All her gates are desolate. Her priests sigh, her maidens are afflicted, and she herself is embittered. Her adversaries have become her master. Her enemies are at ease, 
for the Lord has afflicted her for her abundant transgressions. Her young children have gone into captivity before the enemy. Gone from the daughter of Zion is all her splendor. Her leaders were like harps that found no pasture. They walked on without strength before the pursuer. Jerusalem recalled the days of her suffering and sorrow, all the treasures that were hers in the days of old. With the fall of her people into the enemy's hand and none to help her, her enemies saw her and gloated at her downfall. Jerusalem sinned greatly. She has therefore become a wanderer. All who once respected her disparage her, for they have seen her disgrace. She herself sighs and turns away. Her impurity is, in, is on her hems. She was heedless of her end. She has descended astonishingly. There is none to comfort her. See, O Lord, my suffering, for the enemy has acted prodigiously. The enemy spread out his hand on all her treasures. Indeed, she saw nations invade her sanctuary, nations about whom you had commanded that they should not enter your congregation. All her people are sighing, searching for bread. They traded with their enemies for food to restore their soul. See, O Lord, and behold what a glutton I have become. May it not befall you, all who pass by this road. Behold and see if there is any pain like pain which befell me, with which the Lord has afflicted me on the day of his burning wrath. From on high he sent a fire into my bones, and it overcame them. He spread a net for my feet, he hurled me backwards, he made me desolate, sick throughout the day. The burden of my transgressions was accumulated in his hand. They were knit together and thrust upon my neck. He sapped my strength. The Lord has delivered me into the hands of those I cannot withstand. The Lord has trampled all my heroes in my midst. He proclaimed a set time against me to crush my young men. As in a winepress, the Lord has trodden my maiden daughter of Judah. Over these I do weep. My eye continuously runs with water because a comforter to restore my soul is far, is far from me. My children have become forlorn because the enemy has prevailed. Zion spreads out her hands. There is none to comfort her. The Lord commanded against Jacob that his enemies should surround them. Jerusalem has, made, has become as one unclean in their midst. The Lord is righteous, for I disobey his utterance. Listen now, all you peoples, and see my pain. My maidens and my youths have gone into captivity. I called for my paramours, but they deceived me. My priests and my elders... My priests and my elders perished in the city as they sought food for themselves to restore their souls. See, O Lord, for I am in distress, my innards burn. My heart is turned over inside me, for I rebelled grievously. Outside, the sword bereaved inside was deathlike. They heard how I sighed. There was none to comfort me. All my enemies heard of my plight and rejoiced, for it was you who did it. O bring on the day you proclaimed and let them be like me. Let all their wickedness come before you and inflict them as you inflicted me for my transgressions. For my groans are many, and my heart is sick.